And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to the show this morning. Of course, it's Monday as we get ready to wrap up not only the month, but the quarter as well. Again, as we talked about last week. Um, we're potentially right here in the middle of uh, kind of a quarter end rebalancing. That's been giving a little bit of lift to stocks here, but a lot of stuff to talk about, right? Over the weekend, lots of news. You know, first of all, I'm, you know, not threatening to, you know, take the regime change here and get rid of Brent by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, just want to put that out there. <laughs> and thank you for that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and I'm not going to slap him either, you know, for making jokes in my life. I mean, what a, what a nutty weekend, right? I mean, just. Well, I think that's just an example of how low that show's gotten, and they had to have something to spike up the viewership. I, I guess so. Maybe they got a few ratings out mm -hmm. of it. But it's funny because people on Twitter, so if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, <laughs> over the weekend was the Oscars that nobody watches anyway. Um, but Chris Rock makes a joke about Jada Pinkett Smith, who is Will Smith's wife, mm -hmm. about you know when she's going to make G.I. Jane 2, uh, he'll be the first one to see it. And, of course, I guess uh, Will Smith didn't take kindly to that. He marches up on stage, slaps Chris Rock. They exchange some uh, profanity off mic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then 30 minutes later, Chris Rock has to present Will Smith with the Best Actor Award for King Richard. So this kind of all happened in the context of this. But What a happy neighborhood. <laughs> but it was funny, on Twitter, though, half the people were praising Will Smith for standing up for his wife. Right. Right? So those were the boomers. The millennials were all threatening that he should go to jail and be arrested for assaulting someone. I'm not joking, but that's, <laughs> that's where we are. Anyway. And that was the highlight of the weekend. No, actually, the highlight of the weekend was Joe Biden this weekend. Oh, because that, yes. he announced, no, he announced his new budget, uh -huh. right? So yeah. this, is, this is the highlight, this, despite all the gaffes, right? You know, he put out a new budget. Uh, this calls for a billionaire tax that will raise $360 billion over the next decade. Now, you got to pay attention to the numbers here. Pay attention to the numbers. All right. First of all, the upper 10% of Americans pay roughly about 90% of all the taxes already. Elon Musk has paid more in income taxes in one year than any other person in history. He tweeted out that he's going to stop by the IRS next time he is in Washington, and maybe they'll give him a cookie or something because he's paid more taxes than any human ever in history at one time. Right? He paid like $11 billion in tax on his uh, stock sales. But this new billionaire tax, uh, of course, that's embedded in this new bill, along with, by the way, a carve-out to be explained and discussed later, which is a big, huge chunk of money in the budget, $1.5 trillion, by the way. A big chunk of this is a carve-out. It's kind of a dark box that you can plug something into it later, which would be the Build Back Better plan, right? All the socialist programs. But it was interesting because 
this new billionaire's, you know, this new budget contains a billionaire's tax that if you make over $100 million, you have to pay 20% of your income on everything, right? So income, capital, unrealized capital gains. So in other words, if you have a stock increase in the markets over the course of one year, you're now going to be taxed on that. Now, I know you're all sitting here going, yeah, it's only for people with $100 million or more. They can afford it. Yeah, it's not the point because when it starts there, it tends to flow downhill because once you open that door to taxing capital gains, well, the government's going to go, well, you know, at $100 million, if we drop that down to $80 million, $50 million, $10 million, a million, think how much more money we could collect. But here's the funny thing about this. This billionaire's tax is slated to raise $360 billion in new revenue for the government. That's awesome over the course of a decade. That's $36 billion a year in new revenue. You're spending $1.5 trillion a year in wasted money. So this is all great. We're gonna have new taxes on rich people, which will ultimately work its way down into everybody now. That opens that door to now taxing unrealized capital gains. And once you open that door to Pandora's box for the government to tax unrealized capital gains, it will eventually spread to everyone and your taxes will go up. So just be careful of what's, of what's coming down. Now, look, this budget's not going to get passed. Let's just, let's just start right there. Uh, the reason this budget won't get passed, and I can say this with absolute confidence, is we haven't passed a budget since 2008. Right. The last budget that was passed in government was under the Bush administration before President Obama took over. Since then, we have been living on what we call continuing resolutions. These continuing resolutions, of course, that's what happened back in earlier this month, is where we just pass a continuation of spending from the previous year, but add on 8%. So in other words, if we spend $1 trillion last year, we spend $1.08 trillion this year because we increase it by 8%. That means that every year, all the spending across every department just bumps 8% automatically, right? That's the inflation adjustment. <laughs> but this has been going on for decades. This is why we're now at $30 trillion in debt and continuing to grow. But this is just the fiscal insanity that goes on in Washington. Again, you know, lots of great talk about, you know, we're going to pass a budget and we're going to do these things and we're going to you know t talk about all these different issues but the ultimate reality is is that we're going to continue to live on continued resolutions because nobody really has the, the the gumption i was trying to think of a polite word to use <laughs> cojones to actually pass to actually pass <laughs> a budget and actually cut spending this see this is the thing if you ever and the, the whole point of a budget right that's the dirtiest four-letter word of any family household is budget because nobody wants to be told what they can't spend we just want to spend everything we want to spend we don't like people telling us what we can't spend and that's what a budget would do but again this is why we've now gotten into this point of fiscal insolvency down the road that as we continue just to mount on more and more debt and throw on new programs for more spending and all these type of things, economic growth continues to weaken. And that brings us to the inflation equation, which, you know, everybody over the weekend was whining about high inflation. Ladies and gentlemen, this is just the payback for all the money you got for free a couple of years ago. 
this is the, the ultimate consequence of this. And whether or not you like inflation is not really a function of the problem. The, the problem is, is that you had a bunch of people give money from the government that we couldn't afford to start with. And we did that by increasing debt by $5, billion, uh, $5 trillion. So now we've got this massive debt load that we then threw out all this free money that people went and spent with the expectation they never had to pay it back. Well, paybacks come in all different forms and now it's coming through the form of inflation. Now this will ultimately resolve itself. You know, I had a lot of email conversations over the weekend. It's like, oh my gosh, this inflation is like the 70s. It's never gonna go away. Very different than where we were in the 70s. The 70s inflation was a very different structure than what we have currently. And the consequence of high prices will be much slower economic growth, a big drop in demand, and ultimately as the Fed's hiking rates, that will only slow economic growth further. We will be in a recession most likely much sooner than most analysts expect. We'll come back after the break. Lots of stuff to get into this morning. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. There's a war being waged on your retirement dollar. And unless you act now, you'll lose the battle with inflation, higher taxes, and a lower standard of living. You can blunt the effects of rising prices with our next workshop on combating inflation in retirement. April 2nd at the Embassy Suites Houston. Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff will help you fortify your life savings, make the most of Social Security, and lower your taxes. Register now for this free workshop at realinvestmentadvice.com. Combating inflation in retirement with Ratliff and Rosso. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Uh, Brad Clanton joining me as well on this Monday as we get ready to wrap up the month. Hard to believe the first quarter is almost in the books already. Time flies when you're having fun, I guess. You know, I thought it was interesting. Uh, I Over the weekend, I texted Brent, and uh, my daughter is uh, came down sick on oh, Friday. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. You know this already. I just said, everybody, I just I just texted you. I'm trying to... Play along. I yes, appreciate that. Yes. <laughs> it's part of the show. I don't know. Right. So my daughter came down sick over the weekend, and she went to her mom on Friday morning, and she's like, Mom, I'm running a fever. Now, mind you, she has senioritis. <laughs> right? Um, it's been a challenge this last you know semester of the, of the school year for her to get her to actually go to class this year. She's uh, been coming up with all kinds of excuses why she just can't seem to get there on time. But, you know, we forced her to go anyway. She's going to get through it one way or the other. But, uh, you know, she's already been accepted to college. So she's like, why do I need to finish up high school? I'm already, I'm already accepted to college. I'm like, it doesn't count until you graduate. <laughs> but, you know, we're going to get there. But anyway, she comes out on Friday. She's, she says, Mom, I'm sick. I'm running a fever. And sure enough, she's running 102 temps. So Mom sent her over to... Walgreens to get tested for COVID. 
She goes over and she gets tested. Now, you know, it was interesting when we go back to 2020, if you go check the flu stats in 2020 when COVID was raging across the country. We made several comments here on the shows talking about, amazingly enough, the flu has disappeared. And everybody goes, well, that's because everybody's wearing a mask. No, that's not why everybody, that's not why flu disappeared. It was just we were classifying everything as COVID. If you had any type of illness at all, yep, COVID, there you go. That was because the government was giving people money for COVID treatment. Interestingly, now that uh, the government's now decided that we all need to go back to work and we need to put COVID behind us, the flu is back. And let me tell you why. So she goes, she gets her test and she has the flu. Not COVID, she just has this flu, just seasonal common flu, no big deal. So she comes home, she says, Mom, I got the flu. She's got her doctor's note for school, which is why she needed the test, right? So she comes home and she says, Mom, I got the flu. So Mom gets online and, you know, she's going to get some Tamiflu. Everybody's sold out. You can't get Tamiflu. <laughs> So after you know searching about five different uh, pharmacies and a couple of grocery stores, she finally locates some Tamiflu and gets her taken care of. But it's interesting now because everybody has the flu. The flu is back, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, nice to see you, my old friend. <laughs> Along with pollen count <laughs> as we get ready <laughs> for, for spring. Spring has bloomed or blummed or something because exploded <laughs> because pollen is everywhere so if you're having hay fever symptoms i apologize but just to warn you if you come down sick you probably have the flu thank goodness we can now get back to normalcy anyway speaking of normalcy a couple of things to get into this morning um you know, so we're talking just a, a moment about, you know, the, the budget and the issues with taxes and those type of things. And, and it's always important when we take a look at a lot of these comments that are made out of Washington and, and really take a look at a lot of these economic indicators. You've got to be a little bit cautious about just making broad, sweeping assumptions about certain things. And... The reason is, is that when you're making these broad sweeping assumptions like, well, you know, debt, incomes, whatever it is, for instance, you take a look at household net worth. And there was a comment over the weekend is like households are richer than ever. Since 2020, there's been a explosion of household net worth because of literally $5 trillion injected into households, right? Everybody became day traders. Well, at least they did for a year, then they lost it all <laughs> the next year as a lot of those meme stocks crashed, which, you know, we wrote articles that, you know, that was obvious that that was going to happen. But it's interesting now because it's not what it seems. Household net worth did explode, but only for the top 10% of income earners which had the ability to invest a lot of capital into markets and take advantage of rising prices. The bottom 80% of Americans really, for the most part, have not seen an increase in household net worth, especially once you adjust it for inflation. And this really kind of goes along with, you know, all these indicators, whether it's household income to debt ratios, right? 
there's a lot of those that are out saying, well, you know, the household is healthier than ever because they've really paid off all their debt. No, it's mostly the top 10% that had a lot of excess cash coming in and they said, you know what? I can't spend anything. Might as well pay off some of my debt. And this really kind of gets down to, you know, a lot of different areas of the economy. If you take a look at the economy as a whole, it really isn't as healthy as it looks on paper. And, and this is why you have to really understand what's happening in the economy and when you're kind of migrating this over saying, well, you know, if everybody's so wealthy, that means the stock market can keep going up. You got to be a little bit careful about that because it's not exactly the way that it seems. The ability for households to absorb higher prices is a lot less fungible than headlines would make it look like. In other words, they get impacted very quickly by $4 a gallon gas or rising energy costs at home, or rising food prices. And, you know, this is always kind of the funny thing about inflation. When we talk about it, we say, you know, well, the CPI was up this, but it's X food and energy. And I get it, right? You know, the, the, you know we strip out food and energy because food and energy are very volatile. They go up and down a lot. And so to try to get a, a standardized measure of inflation, we strip out these volatile prices. But the problem is, is that we don't buy... A washing machine every week we don't buy a new car every week we don't buy you know a new house which is a large chunk of cpi by the way every week what we buy every week is gas and food that's what we buy and when you take a look at cpi's example yes housing prices are going up because of what we've been doing to the economy, right? We've been giving people mortgages and lots of money to spend. We get them down payments through checks. Not surprising, housing prices are going up. But what happens on housing prices happens only really on the fringe of the real estate market because it's just people who are actively buying and selling a house that are moving prices up and down. For instance, for me, inflation hasn't affected me that much because my mortgage doesn't change from one month to the next because of inflation. It's the same payment every month, right? Because my mortgage payment is fixed, as is most Americans. So changes to now that my house price has gone up. That's great. I'm not selling my house right now. So that inflation is not the inflation that bothers me. My health care costs are fixed for a year until I have to re-up for health care. So inflation doesn't affect me on a month-to-month -month basis as much as food and energy affects me on a month-to-month -month basis. Those things impact me directly because when I go home, you know, at the end of the week, I stop, I fill up my, my gas tank, and, you know, Normally, it takes me, you know, $20, $25 to fill up my gas tank, and it was $40 last week. Now, it's not the end of the world, but it's definitely an increase, right? And that's money that I now don't have to spend somewhere else. But my housing costs, my health care costs, those type of things, which are the biggest components of CPI calculation, they're going up for people that are buying them today and tomorrow and next week. They're not going up for me. Not yet. Right? My health care costs will go up next year. 
So it's important to keep to remember that for majority of Americans, where they get impacted the most and it is realized the most, and which is what immediately translates into weaker confidence, is at the gas pump and at the grocery store. There's only so much income they have to spend. And once that income is depleted, they either have to go on to credit, which they're doing. And then once that's depleted, once you max out the credit cards, well, then you've got to start making decisions about what not to buy. And this is why consumer confidence always leads recessions. And if you take a look at consumer confidence, consumer confidence has already been declining for the last several months because of rising rates of inflation. This is starting to eat into the confidence of Americans. And let's go back to why the Federal Reserve does quantitative easing. Why does the Federal Reserve do QE? Ben Bernanke, 2010. We're doing QE to boost asset prices in order to boost consumer confidence. Well, what, is, what does that have to do with anything? The theory is, is that if asset prices go up, people feel better about their financial situation. So they loosen up the wallet a bit, right? So they go spend some more money, higher confidence. They go spend more money. That helps boost economic growth because 70% of the economic equation is consumption, right? It's what you and I buy. The problem for the Fed now is they're trying to tighten rates. They're taking QE away. And markets in the economy just haven't quite figured that out yet. But that's coming. Be right back after the break. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com there's a war being waged on your retirement dollar and unless you act now you'll lose the battle with inflation higher taxes and a lower standard of living you can blunt the effects of rising prices with our next workshop on combating inflation in retirement april 2nd at the embassy suites houston richard rosso and danny ratliff will help you fortify your life savings make the most of social security and lower your taxes register now for this free workshop at realinvestmentadvice.com combating inflation in retirement with Ratliff and Rosso, realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Welcome back to the show this morning. And I've got an article out this morning talking about uh, bailouts and capitalism. And it's interesting because we were just talking about the Federal Reserve and the fact that quantitative easing was one aspect of kind of repairing the markets and trying to restore consumer confidence post the financial crisis and the one thing that we've now gotten ourselves into as Americans, and, and really it's, it's everybody, it's, you know, you can't just say, well, it's just 
politicians anymore. You can't say it's just the Federal Reserve anymore. It's now everyone. Is that we no longer want to experience the responsibility of our actions. We live beyond our means. We take on excess risk. We do all these type of things. And then when the, it's time to pay the bill, so to speak, well, we don't like that. For instance, as I said earlier, you know, free money, right? Everybody got free money from the government for, you know, doing whatever they wanted, I guess, during the COVID pandemic. We put moratorium on renters so people that were renting homes couldn't collect rent, couldn't evict somebody for not paying their rent and get somebody who could pay their rent. So, you know, we violate contract law during that thing, you know, during that process, the rule of law being one of the most important consequences of the stability and sustainability of the U.S. economy. Because we don't want to face the consequences of actions. Consumers don't want to face consequences of living beyond their means, so we want more money, right? We want socialistic type policies. Corporations don't want to face the responsibility that they've spent years spending their money on stock buybacks rather than, you know, paying down debt and boosting cash reserves in the event of an eventual downturn. And so when they get in trouble, they run to the government for a bailout. Banks constantly get bailed out because they just expect to be bailed out now because of the financial crisis that they can take on excess risk. This is called moral hazard. Moral hazard is when individuals believe they have an insurance policy against risk. In other words, I can perform bad actions because I don't have to pay the bill. So why not? It's akin to taking excess risk. In other words, think about going to a casino and you're going to go to a casino and you're going to gamble $1,000. Now, this $1,000 happens to be the only $1,000 you have. It's your life savings. You shouldn't be going to Vegas to start with, but you're in Vegas. You have your $1,000 of life savings. Now, if you're going to gamble that, you're probably going to be fairly frugal with it because if you lose your $1,000, well, that's all your life savings, right? In fact... Really, honestly, if you're going to Vegas with $1,000 that's your life savings, you're probably not going to gamble it because it's all the money you have. Until the casino says, don't worry about it. If you lose your $1,000, I will give you your $1,000 back. Now, what do you do? You bet as aggressively as you can as possible, right? What's the game with the biggest odds? What's my chance of doubling or tripling or quadrupling my money the fastest? Because if I, if I win, great. But if I lose, I have no consequence because the casino is going to give me all my money back. That's not how economies work in a healthy fashion. But this is what we've now gotten into. You know, there's a... Issue we've talked about before here on the show about forest fires in California, right? They have had just rashes of, of forest fires over the last few years. And 
the rashes of forest fires and the intensity of them can be directly traced back to changes in their management of forest, their forest management processes. Too much tinder has been allowed to build up on the forest floors. They haven't had breaks put in. There's just a whole variety of issues. So in that environment, that creates the ability to have more frequent and more intense forest fires. It's the same thing in the economy. When you don't allow recessions to occur, or we do everything we can to avoid a recession, in other words, the penalty for excess, we create a weaker economic environment that is more subject and prone to crises because we didn't allow the excesses to be cleared during a normal recessionary event. And this is really the premise of the article that's out on the website today is that we continue to bail out people over and over and over again. And as a result of people getting bailed out, they simply say, well, why not take on more risk? Why not live beyond my means? Why not do all these things? Because it really doesn't matter because at the end of the day, if I'm wrong, well, you know, the government will take care of me. You know, I don't really have to pay my mortgage because the government won't let me get kicked out of my house. I don't really have to save money because the government will send me more. And, and this, is, this is the problem we've gotten ourselves into is that we know the consequences. The inflation we have today is the payback for the free money and the bailouts that we got in 2020. However, what politicians learned from that is that if I give people free money, I get votes. So what do you think happens in the next recession? Instead of allowing the recession to occur, to reset the table so that we can have sustained organic economic growth, immediately what will happen, of course, is the Fed will drop rates back to zero. They'll start doing QE and the government will send checks to households. This is now the new method for dealing with recessions. You know, and part of this, we can go back and, and talk about John Maynard Keynes because he said that during recessions, the government should intervene and spend money. There's two things that people tend to forget about Keynes's theory on economic recessions, which is what he said was, is that during a recession, the government should spend money. Well, what he meant by spending money is not sending checks to households. He meant making productive investments, building the Hoover Dam, building the Tennessee River Valley Authority, things that are long-term productive investments that do create work in the short term during the downturn, right? It gives people jobs, gives them money to earn. They have to produce something in order to get paid that they then go out into the economy and spend. But then also has a long-term payback to pay off the debt that was used to actually fund the building of the project. But also the second part of Keynes' theory is that during the recovery, as the economy goes back into a growth state, you then rebuild the budget to a surplus to prepare for the next downturn. All politicians ever heard was spend money. No matter what happens, got growth, spend more money. If you got a recession, spend even more money. 
And this is where we've gotten ourselves in today. And now, look, everybody complains about the debts. And, and look, I'm getting tons of emails going, oh, my gosh, we're going to have this, you know, this debt crack up and we're eventually all going to die from too much debt. And, you know, the dollar's going to lose reserve currency. Status. Look, I get it. But that could be decades from now. Japan's been running a deficit, 230% of debt to GDP now for two decades. They're still going. And as we talked about before, as investors, we can't bank on these long-term things. We can't invest today for something that may happen 30 or 40 or 50 years from now. We have to make money today. We have to prepare for that event. Missing market rallies are just as bad as being caught in a bear market. So we have to navigate these things. But it's important to understand that that while money has juiced up the value of stocks and bonds and other financial assets, which mainly benefit the rich, it inflames social resentment over the growing inequalities and income and wealth distributions. And of course, then government comes up with these great ideas. We're going to tax the rich, but they're the ones already paying all the taxes. It wouldn't be surprising that Millennials and the Gen Z continue to grow disillusioned with their lot in life. And, and look, it's going to get worse for them, not better. I worry about my kids. I worry about, you know, I, I was having lunch recently with my daughter and a couple of her friends. And one of her friends says, yeah, I'm going to college to get my psychology degree. I just shook my head and I said, might want to rethink that. Because... In the future, it's going to be more and more difficult to participate in the capitalist economy because of the erosion that we're doing to it. So skill sets are going to be extremely important in the future, more, much more so than when Brent and I were coming up. It didn't really matter what our degree was in. We had the opportunity under the capitalist system to forge a path. That ability to forge a path to wealth in the future capitalistic system is going to be much more difficult. Not impossible. Just much more difficult as money migrates to fewer and fewer people in the economy. Be right back after the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. There's a war being waged on your retirement dollars. And unless you act now, you'll lose the battle with inflation, higher taxes, and a lower standard of living. You can blunt the effects of rising prices with our next workshop on combating inflation in retirement. April 2nd at the Embassy Suites Houston. Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff will help you fortify your life savings, make the most of Social Security, and lower your taxes. Register now for this free workshop. Workshop at realinvestmentadvice.com. Combating inflation and retirement with Ratliff and Rosso. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. 
It's Real Investment Show. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Our latest article is out. It's my, it's my, today is a rant. It's not a blog. It's a rant on capitalism bailouts. And, and the reason I got into this article was I, I read this article on the Financial Times. And let me just read you a clip from the Financial Times article. Europe's largest energy traders have joined the insolvent bank in calling on governments and central banks to provide emergency assistance, that is code for bailout, to avert a cash crunch as sharp price moves triggered by the Ukrainian crisis strain commodity markets. The FT goes on to write that in a letter it had seen, the European Federation of Energy Traders, a trade body that counts BP, Shell, and commodity traders like Vital and other margin call-stricken Trafigura as members, say the industry needed time-limited emergency liquidity support to ensure that wholesale gas and power markets continue to function. Okay. Why is that a problem? Because these energy traders were speculating... On the energy market, that's what they do. They're speculators. And they were on the wrong side of the trade. And they lost too much money. In fact, Trafigura was hunting billions of dollars to cover margin calls they were facing by financial institutions. Now, let me ask you a simple question. Whose fault is it that traders placed trades that didn't go the way they expected? Is that the bank's fault? Is that the energy company's fault? Is that the homeowner's fault? Is that the government's fault? Or is it the trader's fault? And assuming whose fault you blame, who should be responsible for their actions? Now, in my opinion, and it's just my opinion, right? It's a trader's fault. He made bad trades. That trader works for a company, so it's the company's fault. So you fire the trader, and the company is going to have to go borrow some money to cover up the problem, or they're going to go insolvent. And if they go insolvent, oh my gosh, what happens? It's terrible, right? We're going to have an economic meltdown. Because this company went insolvent. No, it's not going to happen. First of all, BP makes like $40 billion a quarter. I'm sure they can cover their energy trades. They have plenty of lines of credit, so sure, it's not a problem. Trafigura, though, did a little different story. So Trafigura goes bankrupt. What happens? Well, a couple of things happened during bankruptcy. The first is, is that they basically go to court and they file for bankruptcy and creditors get cents on the dollar for whatever debt that was owed. Shareholders are going to get wiped out. The company restructures itself, comes back out as a as Trafigura LLC the next day, and they're back to work. But no debt, all new shareholders. Life goes on. That's what bankruptcy and you know is for. It's to reorganize. 
Yeah, people lost money. Shareholders lost money. Creditors lost money. Banks lost money. People that were financing them lost money. Well, that's part of the risk of investing, right? The other option is they go into bankruptcy and BP steps up and says, you know what, I'll buy your whole company for 50 cents on the dollar. I'll take care, I'll absorb all your debts, I'll absorb all your traders, I'll absorb all your bad trades. And now BP, as an example, has a whole new division of the company moving forward. Banks get cents on the dollar for their debt, shareholders get wiped out, but that's the way it's supposed to work. But see, as I said earlier, we don't want to do that anymore. What we don't want, we don't want the responsibility. Banks, they can't afford to take the loss on the debt. So we run to governments now and say, well, you got to bail us out because we can't afford to lose that kind of money on our debt. Well, they can. But why should they? Because now they know the government's to bail them out. All they have to do is, and, and again, there's this really great movie. If you ever get a chance to watch this movie. It's called Money Never Sleeps. It's uh, Wall Street Part 2, right, with Michael Douglas. And it's Shia LaBeouf is the, is the young, he's the replacement for Michael Sheen. And he is, you know, trying to navigate his way through things. And Michael Douglas is in the background. But this is basically a recap of what happened in 2008 during the financial crisis. And there's this really great scene where they're in the Treasury Department, right? And the head of the Fed and, and the treasurer is there. And all the heads of the major banks are there. And, of course, they're all using different bank names. It's not Goldman Sachs and Merrill Lynch and those type of things. But there's this one old crotchety guy with glasses, a... Uh, Jewish gentleman sitting across the table, obviously Goldman Sachs, right? And he says, hey, you know, if you let, uh, if you let this, if you don't bail us out, the whole thing goes, <laughs> done, gone. Everything's over. Financial Armageddon is what he's alluding to. And so we go through doing the bailouts. And now, of course, now the banks know all I got to do is say, hey, if you don't bail me out, Armageddon. And immediately the Fed runs to their assistance and bails them out. The government bails out everybody now. And again, you know, I get it, right? I get it. But there's a consequence to actions, and we may not know what those consequences are today. Just like two years ago, nobody had any clue, even though we were telling you this was going to be a problem, Nobody two years ago had any clue that, you know, giving people $5 trillion in, in payments was going to lead to inflation at the time you shut down the entire economy. But the consequences of destroying capitalism is something that takes much longer to appear. But this is why, you know, there's an irony to all of this. And that irony is that the rising culture of government dependence is, in fact, a form of socialism for the rich and powerful. Because they're the ones we keep bailing out. Socialism 
is always and everywhere a migration of wealth to the wealthy. It is a wealth transfer mechanism from the poor to the rich. Socialism destroys your middle class and creates a very large dependency by a bulk of your citizenry on the wealthy. They're the ones that have control over creating the jobs. They're the ones, the rich, are the ones that have control over policy. The rich have control over economies. The poor, which is everyone else, the bottom 80%, the bottom 90%, they're just dependent upon the graciousness of the wealthy while they, in fact, serve the wealthy. But that's what socialism is. That's the dependency that eventually comes out of it. And the problem, as we were saying in the last segment, is that all of these bailouts, like we're doing with energy companies, look, I mean, how is it that you're losing money in a market where energy prices are going just in one direction, right? You've got to be the world's worst trader at this point. But this is always a case because in every market, you have to have a buyer and a seller. Everybody just can't buy. Somebody has to be selling to them along the way. So somebody's wrong, right? For every buyer, there's a seller, and one of them is wrong, always. That's just the way markets work. But we have to be comfortable with the idea of letting losers fail. I was listening to a comedian over the weekend, and she said, you know, back in India, she was from India, and she says, back in India, you know, before I moved here, I would discipline my kids. And then I moved to America, and I found out the way I disciplined my kids would get me put in jail. <laughs> so now I just tell them to go sit on the staircase and ponder life as it, as it seems to them, you know, and this is their discipline, right? The problem is, is that we've removed the impact of negativity from society. We don't want to face the negative consequences. We don't want to deal with the negative consequences, but that's how we learn. We learn through loss. We learn through failure. We don't learn from being bailed out. We learn bad behaviors by being bailed out. You know, kid runs in the street in front of traffic. You yank him back, give him a lollipop. What do you think he does the next time? Right? This is what we do over and over again, and it creates a generational shift in outlooks, and this is why the trend towards socialism is gaining so much traction, because we're continuing to foster the idea that that is where we want to head. And if I'm one of the rich and powerful, I tend to agree with that. Wraps up the show for today. Get by the website, my full rant on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Of course, while you're there, send us your questions, comments, emails. Let us know what we can do to help you always and uh, everywhere on the website is there to help. And again, latest newsletters out as well, talking about the history of yield curve inversions. What does that mean for you and your money? Along with stock screens, our latest technical gauges, all of that in, the, in this weekend's newsletter. Simply click the newsletter link at the top of the webpage, realinvestmentadvice.com. That's realinvestmentadvice.com. Stick around. Our three minutes on markets and money will be up on the website here shortly. Realinvestmentadvice.com. See you back here tomorrow.
into his bad world.